so a bunch of you last week went home and took the spiritual gifts assessment and then were surprised to like tell me like it was really cool like it was really awesome i found like my spiritual gifts or i did this together a bunch of us in our house did it together we did it together as a small group and it was just really cool to hear that kind of excitement around like hey maybe just maybe god has actually wired you and gifted you with spiritual gifts that make a difference in this world and in your life like maybe just maybe there's more to the story than the ache of the ordinary and it's just so cool to hear people come around that and the point last week if you were here was pretty simple it's, understand your spiritual gifts and what was the second point does anyone remember use them it's about as basic as it gets understand and use them and so we're excited for you to find opportunities around here around the city to use the gifts and abilities that god has uniquely given you but this week we're going to look at the the christmas story and i love this time of year and i love what it means to gather around the story of jesus birth and we just sang songs about it and there's traditions that we have around it in fact Millions and millions of people will gather around uh, this story, this Christmas, all over the world. This story that we're looking at, this Christmas story, has been told billions of times over the past 2,000 years. In homes, huts, on hillsides, all over the world. People gather around this story that we're going to be gathering around for the next few weeks together. And the amazing thing is, without any of them talking to each other, or any of them sort of collaborating together, they will all do, all of us will some level, at some point do the very same thing. We will skip over the start of it. We'll skip over one of the most powerful and interesting parts of it, because on the surface, it looks like one of the most boring parts of the story. All over the world and all throughout history, people have gathered around the story, and they've skipped over the first 15, 16 verses of it. Those verses are the genealogy of Jesus. They tell the story behind his start, the story from where he came, the story of those who came before him, how he came to be with us. And people all over the world and all throughout history have gotten to that part, and it looks so boring, and the names are so hard to pronounce that we just skip it. And if you grew up kind of around church, around the Bible, especially if you had a King James version of the Bible, there was lots of begatting going on. And so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. I don't even know what begat but means. I have no idea. And so lots of us just kind of come to that part and we go, eh, let's just skip ahead of the interesting part. Because none of us in our spare time tend to look up and read genealogies. I mean, if you do, you're the reason they created the History Channel. Like, that's not, it's not like a lot of us tend to do that. But in this genealogy, in this history, we have one of the most powerful revelations, not only of who Jesus is, but who we are. Now, the genealogy accounts... Of the four Gospels, only two of the Gospel writers include a genealogy of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. Mark and John do not. They must be activators. They want to just get straight to the chase. Let's get to some of the awesome parts of the story. They just cut straight to it, right? But Matthew and Luke take time to tell the story behind the birth of Jesus, who came and where he came from. Now, Luke does this. They do it for different reasons. Luke does this because we know, if you know about any of the history around the Bible and the study of the characters who are part of writing the Bible, Luke was a doctor. And so it makes sense that he would pay attention to and lay out the details of the lineage of Jesus. That's very important because all throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see very specific details because he pays attention to details. This is something that we want a doctor to do, right? <laughs> you don't want to go to a doctor and have him say, I looks like you have a pain in your tummy area. Uh, it should work itself out. Like, you don't really want that. You want them to be incredibly specific, right? And so that's what Luke does. Luke is very, very specific about 
who comes before who, and how he leads it all the way back to Adam. Matthew has a different intention. We're going to look at Matthew's gospel tonight. Matthew has a very different intention. Matthew is a Jew, and he's writing to a primarily, almost exclusively, Jewish audience. And he has a point to make. There's a point that he is going to make. He is going to show his audience, those readers, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that people have been waiting for. He's going to show them how and why Jesus can be trusted as the long-awaited Messiah. But what we're going to look at tonight as we dive into this text is something actually deeper than just that. We're going to look at how we are a part of that story as well. Matthew does this again through this thing called the genealogy, which is basically like a family tree where he goes through and makes a case for Jesus. Again, not something all of us do on a regular basis, right? Very few of us go into a job interview and draw a family tree up on the board. Well, let me tell you about my grandpa Joseph. We don't really do that because that doesn't make sense. There's not a lot of guys who've proposed to a girl by explaining to them that they come from good stock because most guys don't. And so that's just not what we do. It's not common in our culture, but it's very common in Jesus' culture. There were kings upon kings, rulers upon rulers, pharaohs, all the like, that would have their biographies written, their stories told. And they would make a case for why they were worthy of being king or pharaoh or whatever position they have elevated themselves to. This is very common, that you would trace it back, you'd find their kingly or, or, or their historical lineage and why it's so important that we need to follow them or let us tax us or let them abuse us like they do, because they have the lineage to back it up. It's very, very, very common. And in fact, many of the biographies that we have throughout history do a great job of painting the highlights and telling a great part of the amazing details and successes and war campaigns of all these great leaders, and they do a not-so-good job of talking about the low points of their career. This is just kind of what biographies tend to do. They highlight the best parts, and they tend to gloss over, if not erase, the less-than-good parts. So it's not uncommon for Jesus to have a genealogy, a story told about where he comes from. And if you were setting out to write that story, you'd probably be tempted to do what every other ruler has had done for them when they had their biographies written. You'd want to illustrate and highlight the best parts of the story, wouldn't you? Because there, there's, there's some low points, there's some boring parts, and there's some really dark parts. That if you were trying to make a case that Jesus was the Messiah, the ruler, of the, you know, the Savior of the world, you wouldn't want people to focus on and pay attention to. But Matthew doesn't do that. He goes a different route. And last week we talked about, and we've talked about it a few times here, if they were to make a story of your life, if they were to make a movie of your life, would anyone want to come see it? And I want to take that question and kind of flip it around for you to think about tonight. If they were to make a movie of your life, are there parts of it that you wouldn't want anyone to see? If they were to make a movie of your life today, are there parts, are there scenes, are there chapters, are there seasons, are there relationships, are there addictions, are there things in your story that you would not want to be known or to be seen? I think all of us do. All of us have those at some level. I have them. I mean, there's parts that some of it are just boring. I just thought, why would anyone want to go see that? Like, I grew up, honestly, as a, around the church as a, a good kid, as like a good churchy kid. Like, who's going to go to that movie of Jarrett getting all the answers right in Sunday school? It's not a very interesting movie. It needs massive pyrotechnics. Like, that's not interesting, right? And then there's also seasons, though, where I've really hurt people, hurt people deeply. I don't want you watching those scenes. I want you to think well of me. I don't want you to think about those and look at those 
relationships where I've hurt or damaged people. There are chapters or seasons or scenes in my life where I've done really just stupid things with my money, right? Just dumb things with my money, wasted my finances. And there's a lot of really great things that I could have done that I didn't do. I'm not going to want you to watch that. We all have those. We all have those seasons, those scenes, those pages, those chapters in our story that we wouldn't want other people to know or to see. And yet when Matthew sits down to tell the account of the life of Jesus, of why Jesus is worthy of being Messiah, he goes into great length to tell the whole story, the good and bright parts, the dark parts, and even some of the boring parts. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to dive right into the genealogy of Jesus, starting in Matthew chapter 1. And I know you're excited, because I know that you love genealogies. And we're going to look at this thing and pay attention to this thing to see the point that Matthew is trying to make, not only about Jesus, but about you and I as well. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. These are the opening pages of the New Testament, opening pages of Matthew's gospel account of the life of Jesus. And we see what Matthew is going after in, in, in uh, Matthew 1, verse 1. It says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, in case you were wondering. There's going to be some begats coming, all right? So this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of who? David, the son of who? Abraham. Good. That's not a trick question. The answer is right behind me on the screen, all right? So he's right out the gate saying three very important things. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. A lot is packed into a verse that we often skipped over right there. He's saying a lot. Look, look, this is the story I'm about to tell you about who the Messiah really is and where he came from. And that he's the son of David, which means what Matthew is saying there, he is in the kingly line. He is worthy to be king, just as David was the king, ruler of Israel. This is the new David to rule. He's actually going to be a king, though, who gets it right. So Matthew's saying right out the gate, he is going to be a king, albeit a very different king from what you expect, a king who actually rules fairly and justly and actually rules an upside-down kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first and where love reigns and rules. That's the king that you can expect. So right off the bat, he says, look, you know David? Yeah, we know David. Okay, he's from him. But he also says he's also the son of who? Abraham. So now what Matthew's doing is he's hearkening back to an ancient promise that was given to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant that says that there will be a great line of people that come from Abraham, God's special people that he will have a special relationship with throughout the story of the Bible, came through Abraham. And maybe you don't know all of that behind it, but you may have heard the song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I have one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord. All right, so what, what Matthew could have said is that, but he didn't. He said, look, you remember Abraham? Yeah, we remember Abraham. Okay, he's from Abraham too. He is from that promise. He is just as much a son of Abraham as you and I. So right out the gate, we see that he's Messiah, he's a king, and he's a part of the promise, the covenant that God made to Abraham. So far, the genealogy is going great. Right? Anyone listening is going, all right, I'm listening. You got me. You had me at David, then you kept me at Abraham. Like, I'm ready. Let's do this. Then what Matthew does is so fascinating and interesting. And to be honest with you, for most of my lives, most of my lives, all, all, all of them, all of them, most of my life, 
I've skipped over this part. And in fact, it was about a year ago when uh, a pastor friend of ours was teaching through some of this that it literally hit me for the first time, and I'm ashamed to say in, a, in most of my life that I never paid attention to the story that's wrapped up in the genealogy of Jesus. And I just remember sitting there about a, about a year ago or so and going, I can't believe I've gone this far in my relationship with Jesus and never paid attention to the point that Matthew was making, not only about Jesus, but about me. Now, it's about to get really interesting. It's going to get about PG-13 in here, all right? And it's in the Bible, so I can't help it. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Matthew starts into his account, and, and he says this. He gets down to the part where he talks about Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, in all the times, I know you've read, the, read this and studied it, and I know you've written dissertations on this, but you might have missed, why would Matthew throw in this detail about Judah and his brothers? It's a very, very small thing that's easy to overlook, but it's very important to the story of who Jesus is and who we are. Because if you know anything about the story, Jacob himself was a pretty uh, messed up dude, starting off in his story. He stole his brother's birthright, Esau's birthright. He connived and did a little identity theft of his brother and stole the, right, the birthright that belonged to his brother Esau and spent half of his life running from God and running from a very angry, and as the Bible tells us, hairy brother, right? So that's Jacob. So we're starting right out there with Jacob. This is a guy who starts his career by cheating, by stealing, identity theft, right? Eventually he's broken by God, has a son, has actually a, a, like a litter of children, and one of them is Judah, but there are several other brothers that Matthew wants to pay attention to because one of Judah's brothers was a kid named Joseph, Joseph has a fascinating story that we just don't have time to go into tonight. Joseph was hated by Judah and his brothers. In fact, Joseph was so hated by Judah and his brothers that they set out to kill him. Joseph was the favored son of Jacob. And so Judah and his brothers put together a plan to kill Joseph. And if that's not sibling rivalry to the extreme, I don't know what is. My brother used to hit me across the back seat of our Plymouth, but that's, this has taken it to another level. They're going to kill him. When they get to the point of killing him, they realize they probably shouldn't kill him. That would be bad. And so they throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery, a much better option. Judah and his brothers sell their brother out and then stage his death to convince their father that they had nothing to do with it. So this is the genealogy of Jesus. Judah and his brothers have blood on their hands. They've sold Joseph into slavery. But if you know the story of Joseph, Joseph continues. He goes to Egypt. He rises to power and influence in that faraway country. And when a famine hits his homeland, it is his exact brothers, Judah and his brothers, who come to Joseph, assuming he's dead or long gone. And it is Joseph who is the savior of his family, of Judah and his brothers. We see a fascinating story, what these guys meant for harm and destruction in Joseph's life. Another story is told. And Matthew wants you to know, to pay attention, that Judah, right out the gate, and his brothers have blood on their hands. These are not perfect, Christian, churchy kind of people. So we have identity theft, attempted murder, slavery. This is all just in the first couple verses. But let's move on. The story gets really interesting, the genealogy of Jesus. Jump down to Matthew 1, verse 3. It talks about Judah now being the father of Perez and Zerah, or however you want to put it, Zerah, Zerah, however you want to pronounce it, whose mother was Tamar. Now again, this is why so many of us skip over this. It's like, 
where do these names come from? Well, they're old names from another country, so they weren't called Kevin and Chris, okay? These are ancient names of a faraway culture, right? And this is telling the story of how Judah had two sons and that their mother was Tamar. Now, this is scandalous for two reasons for Matthew to include this. First is, genealogies very, very, very rarely included women. In that culture, it was the male who was dominant. In that culture, that's how genealogies were told. It was the father who gave the name and the birthright and the family, you know, sort of story to the son, and then that son gave it to their son. That's how genealogies were told. Women were many times in that culture left out of the story. But Matthew, in just the first three verses, mentions Tamar. Scandalous because she's a woman. Scandalous also because she is straight-up shady. All right, so we'll, the Bible says that. It's in there. This is what happens. I'm only going to tell you a little bit, because again, we have some kids in the room. I've got to keep it PG-13, all right? Here's a quick story of what happens with Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Judah has two sons. They are wicked. They redefine the word wicked. And so God literally wipes them out. Now, there's a lot of theological complications to how that works. They're wiped out. They're so wicked. And one of his sons who had died, his wife's name was Tamar. So Judah has a daughter-in-law named Tamar. Well, eventually, Judah, his wife dies. And he is so distraught, he is so overwhelmed with grief, his story has not turned out the way it could have or should have. It is nothing like his brother Joseph. And here he is, this one who's a part of the genealogy of Jesus, distraught, distressed, and in grief over losing his two sons and his wife. So in his grief, he decides that one of the best things he can do is to go see a prostitute. Very logical decision. And so he goes to a prostitute. Now, this is where things get Jerry Springer. Tamar, his daughter-in-law, had no security in that culture. As a widow, as someone left out, she has no security. And so she puts together a plan that the only way to get security is through her father-in-law, Judah. And so she dresses up as a prostitute and tricks Judah, wearing a disguise, she tricks Judah into sleeping with her. Wait for it. It's her father-in-law. Okay? And that's not the end of the story. Because she gets pregnant by her father-in-law. And Judah doesn't realize what he's done until about nine months later, and they had one of those shows where they find out who the baby daddy is. <laughs> and Judah realizes what he's done. And he's finally broken and distraught over his sin. But she has two twin boys, Tamar does. And their names are, as you can see in the text, Zerah, whose name literally means glowing, and Perez, whose name means one who gossips about celebrities online. Read your Bibles. <laughs> so we are three verses in. And the count keeps growing. We have, I mean, incest, essentially. We have a daughter-in-law deceiving her father-in-law so that she can have security. And yet there's another story being told even through that darkness and through that brokenness. But it's not done. Jump down to verse 5. We can see that we're going to kind of cut into about the middle of verse 5. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was 
Rahab. Do you see that there in verse 5, Matthew 1, verse 5? Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Again, Matthew is including a woman in the genealogy of Jesus. This is not normal in that culture. But this is also not normal because unlike Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute, Tamar was. Tamar was, right? Do I get their names right? I'm sorry, Rahab. Sorry, so many names. Rahab actually was a prostitute, like a card-carrying prostitute. And she was a part, she lived in a city called Jericho. And Jericho at that time was one of the enemies that was standing against the people of Israel. And so Joshua, you ever heard that song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho? So Joshua is about to take on the city of Jericho, an enemy of his people. And he sends some spies in to see what's going on, to see what kind of the lay of the land. These two spies are actually saved and protected by a prostitute named Rahab. But she makes a deal with them before they leave, before she rescues them and saves their lives. Will you protect me? When you overtake the city, which I believe you will, will you and your God protect me? She is not part of the Jewish people. She's not part of that nation of Israel. She's an enemy at that time. And she says, will you protect me? And they make a covenant. They make a promise. Yes, we will. And Jericho is taken. It's an amazing story. And the army moves forward. But in the process, they save Rahab, a prostitute, her and all of her family are not only saved, but they are now enfolded into the family and the people of God. This is very interesting. She was an outsider who was not only an outsider because of her ethnicity, she was an outsider because of her profession. And yet she is saved. She is brought in, not only to the family of God, but to the lineage of Jesus. Matthew is making a point here very, very clear. We'll move on to just one more, and it's in verse 6. Matthew references David, King David, which everyone was familiar with. He says that David was the father of Solomon. These are the two greatest kings that arguably ever ruled on earth, definitely two of the greatest kings that ever ruled Israel. So he says David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now Matthew is being very, very clear here. Again, this is a verse we would have skipped over. but Matthew is making a point, a much deeper point about who Jesus is and who we are. He says that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Does anyone know the name of David's wife, who he's referencing here? Bathsheba. Now, this is a name that wasn't spoken of often, not because of who she was, but because of what David did. David committed adultery with Uriah's wife, whose name was Bathsheba. He saw her, he wanted her, and he had her. And if that wasn't enough, David, like every one of us, attempts to cover his tracks. And so he tries working elaborate schemes, and he tries to kind of cover up his tracks and convince Uriah that maybe he had gotten his wife Bathsheba pregnant, but Uriah was a man of character and integrity. Even though David was a man after God's own heart, Uriah had more character and integrity than David in those moments. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't give in. He wouldn't play along. And so to cover his tracks, ultimately David has Uriah killed. And eventually takes Bathsheba in as his wife, and they have a son. His name is Solomon. He rules over Israel. This is a dark moment, the darkest moment in David's life. And Matthew makes a point to bring it to the surface. In the genealogy of Jesus, in explaining the how and why behind who Jesus is, Matthew is making a point. He doesn't want you to forget. He could have even just said Bathsheba, but what does he say? It's like almost a passive-aggressive way of saying it. Oh, that's Uriah's wife. Y'all remember Uriah? Remember what David did? I mean, that's kind of like what he's doing. 
And everyone knows, gets, oh yeah, oh wow. But see, if you skip it, if you move past it, you don't see what David is doing here. Just within the first six verses, we've just done the first six verses of the genealogy of Jesus. And we have identity theft, we have uh, betrayal, we have incest, we have uh, adultery, we have uh, impersonating a prostitute, we have actually being a prostitute, we have murder. And that's just six verses in. And that's the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. What is Matthew doing here? If you and I were to try and write the story of the Savior of the world and make a point about who he is, we would go out of our way to gloss over, if not delete out the dark spots. But Matthew is making a very big point, not only about who Jesus is, but about who we are. And that is this, that Jesus did not only come for sinners, he came from them. That Jesus did not only come for sinners, for broken, for flawed, for messed up, for people like you and me who have chapters and seasons and scenes that we would not want anyone else to see. Jesus not only came for us, he came from us. This is the line of which he comes from. Ordinary, broken people like you and me. And if he's ever going to be with us, as we just sang a few moments ago, Emmanuel, God with us, we have to know that he came from us. It is very, very important that you and I see the point that Matthew is making is not only about Jesus, it is about us. And no one knew that better than Matthew himself. Because if you keep reading on the story, just a few chapters later, about eight chapters later, Matthew tells the account of someone that Jesus came across, a tax collector, a horribly despised person who had sold his people out for a buck, an outsider, an outcast. And Jesus came to that tax collector and said, follow me, come and be my disciple. And do you know the name of that tax collector? It's kind of a trick question. It's Matthew. It's Matthew himself. See, the guy who's writing the genealogy of Jesus here, who's going out of his way to let you know that Jesus not only came for sinners, but he came from sinners, is actually one of those sinners that Jesus came for. He gets it. He goes, you guys have no idea. You should see my life. Oh, you should see my friends' lives. We are, as one translation of the Bible puts it, we are scandalous sinners. We are over the top, and yet somehow Jesus came for me, is the point that Matthew is making. He comes for me because he comes from people just like me. See, when your story, your whole story, collides with the story of God, you don't have to edit anymore. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to delete or gloss over or try and make pretty anymore. Matthew had nothing to hide about his own story and his own life, and he had nothing to hide or protect or pretend about the story of from where Jesus came. Jesus, who himself knew no sin, came from a great lineage of sin. And when your whole story collides with the whole story of God, you don't have to edit or delete or gloss over or protect or pretend anymore. That's what happens that's what happens when your whole story comes into contact with who Jesus is. I was having coffee this past week with a friend of mine. 
And uh, I, I know him fairly well. Every time we get together, I hear a little bit more of his story. And he told me uh, something I'd never heard before. And I don't even remember exactly how it came up. But he told me that when he was a senior in high school, uh, his grandmother got really sick, and so his parents had to move across state to take care of her. But they didn't want him to miss his senior year of high school, so they decided to let him stay in the town that they were living in. That's not crazy. Some of us have had that happen with us. But they didn't have anyone for him to stay with. And so they found a woman that they did not know who had a room in her trailer that they let him live in. And so he moved in with a stranger into a trailer that was complete and utter distress and distraught and chaos and mess. And he said he remembered going to night, he would fall asleep at night watching the cockroaches crawl above his bed. And the woman began to eventually tell him that his parents weren't paying his rent. And he only recently began to realize that she was scamming him. And so she demanded that he pay rent. And so now as a senior in high school, 17 years old, he has to go get a job at Taco Bell to pay rent to live in this dirty, run-down trailer with a complete stranger. And so he would work till about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, go to school all morning, work all night. And he said he began having to take, like, take notos and Red Bull and all kinds of stuff to try and stay awake just to get his homework done. And he said he, just, he began to start to lose touch with reality. As a 17-year-old kid, all by himself, his parents are cross-state, they have no idea what's going on. And so he eventually got enough sort of common sense to realize this was not a place for him to really live. And so he moved out into his car. And here's a senior in high school at a pretty affluent, normal, you know, middle-class area, sleeping in his car every night in the parking lot of his school. And then eventually he found a pastor in the area, a youth pastor in the area, Found, and they met each other, and after a couple of weeks living in his car, this pastor let him come live in his house, and that really is where he began to understand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. But he was telling me these things, and I'm having to fight back tears, and he's just sort of a, like recounting this, the story to me, you know, like, and then this, this happened, oh yeah, and he told me, he was like, a buddy of mine made me a, a blow dart gun to kill the cockroaches. And that, there's a couple things wrong with that. I'm like, you know, you can step on them, like, and you don't need a ninja weapon to destroy cockroaches, but it makes the story interesting. And as I'm sitting across from him, I'm, I have such deep compassion for him. And I just asked him, I said, you know, do, do you, like, tell me you've gone to some sort of counseling or therapy to process through this. He said, you know, I went once, and the entire time the counselor just cried. And I got to the end, and I said, wait a second. I'm supposed to be the one crying. You're supposed to be the one with answers. And he said, so I've never really been back. <laughs> and we were able to have a conversation in the moment there where I was able to say, look, you know, like, that's a major part of your story. That's not normal. That's not normal. And, and when we began to talk, because he's a friend, I said, my hunch is your lack of trust in people stems directly back to that. That your cynicism is somehow rooted back to that, that abandonment. That's what that is. As I began to you know, understand and listen and understand more and more and more of his story, it began to hit me. Like, what if his story were fully, all of it, turned over to the transformational love of Jesus? 
Now, this is a guy who, who knows Jesus. He would call himself a Christian, but there are major parts of his story that are unprocessed, that are, haven't been um, brought fully to who Jesus is. And that for most people, honestly, the only reason I know that is because I kind of kept prying a little bit to hear that part of his story. And it just made me think about what we were talking about and what we'd be looking about here this weekend. This is Matthew so honestly and openly tells the whole story from where Jesus came. It makes me wonder, what would it look like if you and I were to tell our whole story to him and to bring all of who we are to all of who Jesus is? Because the truth is, the truth is about your life, about my life, is there are moments, there are seasons, there are chapters, there are scenes, there are pages that we have tried to tear out, that we have tried to keep anyone from ever seeing, that we do a lot, we exhaust a lot of energy and effort on editing. And I just have to wonder about my own story and about yours, is what would it look like for you and I to bring all of that to Jesus and say, okay, here's all of who I am. And if it's true that you not only came for sinners, you came from sinners, then there's not a single thing in my story that will shock you or surprise you or keep me from your love and acceptance of me. Isn't that interesting? That there's not a single thing in your story that will shock or surprise or suppress the love of God from your life. The only force working against that is you keeping your whole story, your whole life, your whole self, your whole followership from Jesus. That's what's working right now against you. It is true that there is an enemy, there is a force in this world that is working to destroy the very life that God promised you. And so often we give him the keys when we try and edit, gloss over, delete the parts of our story that actually Jesus is familiar with. Though he was not, had not an ounce of sin in him, it's all throughout his, the pages of his genealogy. And so I wonder, and I want us to really think seriously about this, what would it look like this Christmas for you to bring your whole story to Jesus? What would it look like for you to bring your whole story to Jesus, knowing full well that you cannot shock, that you cannot surprise, and you cannot suppress the love of God from your story? What would that look like? What are the parts of your story, your life, they may be in the past, they may be right up to this very moment when you walked in these doors tonight, that you are trying so desperately to erase, to delete, to ignore, to shine over, to edit down. What if you were to say, in an act of absolute trust, Jesus, I want to bring all of this to you, and I want you to do what only you can do with my story. I want my story to collide with yours. What do you think would happen this Christmas if you did that? How do you think this Christmas might be different if you were to be fully present with Jesus, to make yourself fully known to him? What might be different? What we want to do is give you a moment to think about that, to reflect on that. And so right under your seats, there's a little triangular ornament. I want you to reach under and grab that. I want you to grab a pen that's in front of you because we want to give you a few moments to take some time and really think about the whole story and what it would look like for you to bring the whole story to Jesus this Christmas. There's not a detail, there's not a thing that Matthew kept out. What would it look like for you and I to do the same? And so you have a little ornament. It's got like a little hook on it. 
and there's a pen right in the chair in front of you. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. On the front side, I'd like for you to write real plain and clear your name. All right, so just write your name. We're going to make some ornaments up in here. And so I'd ask you to write your name. And then what we're going to do here in a minute is we're going to give you a moment on the back to write out to God a prayer. To write out to God your commitment, your desire to bring your whole story to him. And for some of you, that's a really, really big step. And so it might just start with, dear God, this Christmas, I want to bring all of myself to you. For some of you, though, you may have the courage, and God may be moving and speaking in your heart right now, to be specific. Dear God, this Christmas, I commit to bringing my finances fully to you. I have been trying to edit and control this part of my story for far too long. And I'm embarrassed or ashamed at times of what I do, the way I waste my money. I want this Christmas to bring that to you. Or I want to bring this unhealthy relationship to you. And I've tried to manage it. I've tried to make sense of it. I've tried to convince all my friends that no, it's actually good and actually is going to work despite the fact that every one of them told me it's not. And I want to bring this unhealthy relationship to you. Maybe it's a dating relationship. Maybe it's a broken relationship in your family. I had a friend tell me this last week that she has a, a deep friend of mine, dear friend of mine. She has a sister she hasn't spoken to in four years. And it's kind of normal. It's become normal. It's not normal for anyone who's in a relationship with God. And so maybe it looks like I want to bring that broken, that unhealthy, that lost relationship to you, that addiction to you. This Christmas, I want to tell the whole story of where I go when nobody's looking, of what I do to cope, to try and get through life. Patterns that may have run through the past that I've tried to gloss over, pretend like never happened, or maybe running right up to this very minute right now. Or maybe for you, it's the fact that you just need to write, I'm bringing my whole story to you, and it's pretty boring right now. We spent the last couple of weeks looking about what it means to have an extraordinary life with Jesus, and you may just have to say, you know what? It's boring, and I don't know what to do, and I want your extraordinary to eclipse my ordinary this Christmas. And you just need to admit it. You just need to write it down. And so for the next few moments, that's what we're going to do. We're going to stop editing. We're going to stop pretending. We're going to stop deleting. And this Christmas, we're going to bring all of who we are to Jesus. And for some of you tonight, for some of you tonight, that may mean for the first time in your life that you enter into a relationship with Jesus. If it's true that the Savior of the world that had been promised all these many generations, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, came not only for people like you, but from people like you. And if it's true that there's nothing in your life that could shock or surprise or suppress the love of God from your life, maybe this Christmas is the Christmas that you enter into a relationship with Jesus. That you say, you know what, this is a Christmas. I've been running as fast as I can, as far as I can, and I want to come to you this Christmas, Jesus. And you would write that on your ornament. And then here's what we're going to do. What we love about our church is that we are committed to being a church where everyone is accepted, no matter where they're at, no matter where they've come from, but everyone's expected to grow. And our story as a church is a story of people like you and me who bring our whole story to God and to each other. And so we have this Christmas tree, this straight-up urban Christmas tree 
that we are going to put right up here in front of the stage. And we're going to ask that each of you come and hang your ornament on that tree. And it's a way for us to symbolize that this church is made up of people just like the ones that Jesus came for and from. And that there is nothing, nothing in this world that can shock or surprise or suppress us from the love of God. Can you imagine what would, like, can you just imagine sort of how that would actually feel when we gather together on Sundays, when we gather together in small groups, when we serve together throughout the week, if we actually lived like we didn't have to hide or pretend or edit our stories anymore, where people are actually accepted and welcomed and brought in despite what they bring in with them, where people are actually encouraged to not have to hide or pretend or try and convince us that they're more spiritual than they are because none of us are? Can you imagine what that would be like? If all of us brought all of our story to all of who God is, that starts, that can start right now, this Christmas. So I want to pray for you. The band's actually going to just play and give us a few moments to write all that out. And then I would ask you as an act of courage and commitment to bring your ornament to the front and to say, you know what, this Christmas, I'm bringing all of who I am to Jesus, all of it, even the parts I'd want to hide. So let me pray for us, for you, for me right now, and then we'll do that together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, first and foremost, that we can have relationship with you. And the reason we can have relationship with you is because of what you've done. Not just what we celebrate at Christmas, but what we celebrate at Easter, that you defeated sin and death. That you made it permanent forever, once and for all, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in you, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I pray that you'd give us the courage, even now, especially now, to write out, to write down, to bring together to the front our whole story. And it looks different for every one of us, but the themes and threads are the same. As we are people who are desperately in need of you. And I pray as we see these ornaments fill this tree that we would be reminded that we are not alone. We are not alone outside of a relationship with you, that you are here, you are present, you are moving in our lives. And we are not alone with each other. But there are people just like me who have struggled and strived and tried to put this life together and make it work. And we just fall on our knees and say, no, this Christmas, this year, I'm going to depend on Jesus. I'm going to depend on the one who came for and from. That's our prayer, God. That's our hope for this church and for our lives. And we want to see you move and remind us of that right now. In your name, amen.